Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Securiosity. Before we get to the news, I want to tell you about some events going on, particularly FedScoop's DC Cloud Week coming up in June. DC Cloud Week is a citywide festival bringing together thousands of government and tech leaders from around the nation to share how the cloud is transforming government, academia, nonprofits, and the private sector. The week-long festival will consist of dozens of community conferences, events, and parties, and is anchored by Fed Talks, the largest annual gathering of the top 1,000 C-level leaders from the GovTech community. For more information, check out dccloudweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for April 25th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jenna Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. This week, we have a ton of government cyber news to get to, Cyber Command success metrics, FBI cybercrime reports, and Jen's favorite topic in the world, election security. Woohoo! In our interview, we're going to talk to Flashpoint CEO Josh Leftowitz about what he's seen on the dark web. There was also a bunch of research into all the shady things going on in cyberspace, not just the dark web, so we have plenty of news. Let's get right to it. Security experts say the small number of companies that dominate the nation's election technology market have failed to remedy vulnerabilities that lie in systems used to hold elections across the country. Once left to obscurity, the entire ecosystem has been dragged since the Russian government was found to have interfered with the 2016 presidential campaign. These companies can no longer ignore the call to change up their security, so they've started to take measures. The leader, election software and systems, has taken numerous measures to enhance cybersecurity, but crises seem to be lukewarm on it. But critics seem to be lukewarm on it. Greg, what are the measures and what do you think this is going to do for the future? So the measures are uh, a couple of things. One, uh, ESNS has reached out to an Iowa City-based pen testing firm named ProCircular that did a pen test on their DS200 uh, ballot tabulator. Um, that, that that's a piece of voting equipment that it's basically a touchscreen voting system where you, um, instead of, you know, taking a ballot and filling it out by paper and feeding it into a machine, you're generally just touching it like you would your iPhone. Um, they had that pen tested and it was the, – the results haven't been made public, but it, it, the, the company, when I talked to them, said we, we found it to be pretty reliable and pretty secure. Uh, they also – and this is the big thing. They also – contracted with DHS's um, office at the Idaho National Laboratory to do a full pen test of their entire election management system. It's been going under testing since I believe the beginning of this month, and there should be a report produced at the end of May, early June, on what exactly they need to do in order to shore up uh, more safety when it comes to their system. Security advocates told me that, look, this was all great and and good, but at the same time, like these reports need to be, if if not made public, at least shared with the states because all of this equipment is what's powering our elections and the election systems are so fragmented as it is when it comes to leadership. I mean, it's at the state level, it's at the locality level, and that's really the people that are hands-on with this equipment. So the advocates that I talked to were like, okay, I mean, it's nice that they're doing this. It's better than not doing anything. But at the same time, if they're not sharing that information, if they're just going to take that 
uh, information and process it in- internally, that's a problem because the states need to know what they need to look out for when it comes to the vulnerabilities and the security holes in these machines. So um, they, the election security advocates that I talked to said this at worst is just a marketing ploy at best – Maybe it'll launch them to have better outreach with the states. So TBD, but it doesn't look like the elections system companies are just resting on their laurels based on, you know, all of the feedback that they got after the DEFCON voting village stuff came out last year. So was this just ignored before the 2016 election completely? I don't necessarily think that it was ignored because ESNS and uh, all of the the companies had their own uh, independent people that were poking around cybersecurity wise, uh, and they also were vo- voluntarily following the. I use that word voluntary because it's been kicking around in my head. The voluntary voting systems guidelines, the VVSG, as it's known. It's a document that was produced by the Elections Assistance Commission that basically goes out and says, okay, here's what you need to do if you want to follow cybersecurity when it comes to these systems. And a lot of the states and a lot of the localities follow these guidelines. But again, they're voluntary. The companies necessarily don't have to do it. There's no statute and there's no standard from a law perspective that says this is what you need to do if you're going to sell election tech to the country. I mean, it kind of bothers me if I'm voting for the president of the United States in Virginia and I'm voting a different way than I would in Rhode Island, um, that seems weird to me. It seems like we should have the same amount of protection. We should be voting in the same way, whether it be paper or a touch screen. Right. No, and I am totally with you on that. And I think that I think that the companies would agree as well. If they want to sell one standard piece of equipment, that would be fine with them. I mean, they're trying to make their dollars however. But that's also partly up to the states and the localities to determine that too. I think there was a story earlier this week, particularly uh, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the Elections Commission in Philadelphia decided that they were just going to stick with machines that weren't – or that were paperless. That There is no way to – actually have a paper tab tabulation in order to do an audit afterwards. And that's really a big thing. And what, what are the, the vendors going to do? I mean, it, it's ultimately up to the states. The states are going to procure the equipment and the cities are going to procure the equipment that they want to procure. And I mean, they're, they're going to sell, like they're still a company at their heart. They're going to sell that equipment no matter what, they're going to get their their check. So it comes down to the states and really understanding why it's important to have paper ballots and why it's important to have a mechanism where auditors can come in afterwards to really verify that this was a secure election. I mean, no offense to our elected officials, but on a state level, they typically have full-time jobs and it's a... Um, essentially a volunteer gig to be a state house representative or senator. Um, certainly they don't have time to get up to speed on really any of these things, to be smart enough to be voting on these kind of things. So it, it would, I would think as important as this is, this would come from a federal level um, where people actually are employed to think about Right. Well, okay. So it's funny that you say that on the federal level, there was just a letter put out by Senator Klobuchar basically asking Senate appropriators to give the elections 
Elections Assistant, EAC, just so I'm not <laughs> mouthful, to give uh, more money to the EAC for particularly that reason, so they can get out from a federal level out to the states and out to these localities to enhance cybersecurity, because you're right, it, it is really haphazard right now due to the way that state legislatures are run. You're talking about volunteers, and you're talking about people that if they're not volunteers, they're not exactly making great salaries. Mm-hmm. So th- th- there's not just the attention being paid to things like this when it's really important to pay attention to things like this. So it's funny that you say that. There are a lot of people on the federal level that uh, agree, and there are people in there right now, especially at DHS, that are you know out there talking to states and trying to push what they can in terms of cybersecurity. But there needs to be more money. I mean, isn't that basically what it comes down to when we're talking about the government all the time? Money, yeah. So. Th- there's a push on the federal level to get more money inside the EAC so we can have better cybersecurity and it doesn't come down to this haphazard state and locality mishmash of just picking machines and then hoping everything turns out for the best. Speaking of DHS, one of DHS's first binding operational directives about cybersecurity is paying off in an important way. It once took federal agencies an average of 149 days to patch critical vulnerabilities once they were alerted, but now that number is down to 20 days, according to Chris Krebs, who is head of DHS's Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. The goal is to get that down to 15 days, Krebs said at an event in D.C. on Tuesday, uh, and this BOD on patch management came in 2015. DHS has issued several others since then and has been really, really focused on this patch management one. Jen, that seems to be like a huge improvement. That is a huge improvement, but I kind of feel like it should be down to a couple days. What do you think it is on the private sector? Do you know on average? Oh, I I don't know. I think that's hard to just look at it from a private sector standpoint because of the size of companies. Like I'm sure that just looking at it from a financial perspective, what it takes Goldman Sachs to patch something might not be the same thing as your local credit union. And that might be – and there's a myriad of different reasons for that. But it's just – that just seems like a really long time to put out a patch. Yeah, But I I think it's also important to remember the size of some of the agencies that we're dealing with. Like if there's a Microsoft Windows patch that needs to be rolled out, you're talking about 10, 20,000 employees that could be affected that way. You break 5,000 computers, you've – by pushing out a patch, you've, you know, kneecapped your agency for, what – two to three days at at minimum. So, yeah, yeah, there is a process that needs to be – that needs to be followed. And I, I, I actually think that that 15 days is lightning fast for some of these agencies. Like just thinking about, I don't know, like the Treasury Department rolling out a, a Windows patch for the year, for the entire agency over 15 days. A lot could go wrong with that. A lot could go wrong with that. So I, I think that I think that is pretty fast. If you ever get it to the point where it would be like two to three days, that's almost like automation stuff, I feel like, at that point, which is interesting. But 15 days, if you still have humans, um, you know, rolling out those patches and rolling out the, the fixes. Oh, that's got to be automated. That can't be... I mean, computer by computer. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. There's, there's no like manual foot soldier force okay. that's, that's pressing buttons on all of these, uh, all of these systems. No, that, that would, that would not take 15 days. That would be a problem. So, um, no, I, I, I do think that's, it's a really interesting drop in, 
the timeline there. And hey, uh, a positive story when it comes to federal cybersecurity for us. That is a positive story. So Brigadier General Timothy Hogg, who is in charge of Cyber Command's Cyber National Mission Force, said Tuesday that the command is shifting the way it measures success from solely military outcomes to how the command enables other government agencies to defend against foreign offensive cyber threats. New benchmarks for success include the State Department issuing a démarche, the Department of Homeland Security issuing an alert, or the Treasury Department issuing sanctions based on information derived from cyber command operations. Greg, what do you think of the benchmarks? So I think it gets back to the discussion about information sharing. Information sharing, we've heard about that, uh, I mean, since since I've been covering the GovTech community and cybersecurity inside the federal government, it's been information, information sharing, information sharing. And, you know, your eyes tend to glaze over when you mm-hmm. hear that so much because <laughs> you hear dueling stories about how nobody talks to one another when it comes to this type of stuff. Or I've heard horror stories where – People have literally been on conference calls, conference phone calls, sharing hashes of different malware signatures, which is not the way to do things at all. So to see that there seems to be some sort of information sharing that leads to a bigger policy push from all the different tendrils of the federal government, I I think that this is another positive thing. Like it's not just a military kinetic sense where it's like, okay, like thinking back to the story uh, around the 2018 midterms, how we took the Internet Research Agency offline in Russia. That is a very solely military thing. But then if you think about it from a wider uh, standpoint, the Treasury Department has put sanctions on Russia based on that action. Uh, the Department of Justice has rolled out all of those indictments that we've yeah. talked about before. So it really gets to the information sharing part and that, and another buzzword that gets shared in government circles that tends to glaze eyes over is the whole of government approach. This really is a whole of government approach. When you have all these agencies working in concert to really stop a threat that is, you know, hits a ton of things when it comes to the federal government. So this benchmark for success, I think, is really, really important because Cyber Command touches more than just the military aspect of things. So it's nice that they've been public about the other parts of the government that they are affecting. So that's another feel-good government story there for us. Two and one. So Ambassador Robert Strayer, the State Department's cyber chief, said he thinks that any nation state behind recent domain name system hijacking should be held to account under the 2015 Cyber Warfare Norms Accord forged at the United Nations. Although researchers are still trying to attribute the attacks to specific actors, there are indications that hackers are backed by nation state or several nation states when it comes to recent DNS hijackings. Strayer said that under existing norms, it wouldn't matter if the attackers were government-sponsored or merely just affiliated. Quote, nations are responsible for their proxies. Meanwhile, the next round of talks at the UN on cyber warfare norms have hit a snag with U.S. adversaries. Uh, Jen, do you agree with what the ambassador is saying here? Should we be holding these countries accountable? So what does it mean by just being affiliated, right? I mean, does that mean... From a perspective of like the United States, if we had, I don't know, like a group of um, guys that used to work at the NSA and they went out and attacked um, another country, would that be considered affiliated? I think affiliated has to do more with the way that Russia sets up their like cyber warfare enterprise. Um, 
there was a really interesting story in 60 Minutes this past week where it was basically laid out that Russia uses their cyber criminal underground to mask their attacks, basically, where it's basically instead of the U.S. going to like a contractor to take care of all of their cyber warfare needs, they're going to like the hacker underground and going, go do this for us. We're not going to give you the details. Just go do this for us. Here's your check and no questions are asked. So I think that's what the affiliated part is getting at. Like instead of pointing to like the GRU doing something for the Russian government, it's oh, this hacker syndicate, which isn't really connected to the Russian government from an official standpoint, like they aren't employed by uh, Russian intelligence, but they're doing this on behalf of the Russian government. I think that that is what we're getting at by affiliated. Like it's more of this tenuous gray area where it's like, okay, let's leverage these criminals, but if the charges ever come back to them, it's just criminal activity and it's not a diplomatic thing where it starts to get into nation state other things that that go on as far as laws and and war crimes and and things like that i mean i really like the idea of charging this for you know it, under sort of war crimes and in all of this hacking i think that's a great idea well, it, I mean, it's yeah, it's interesting. And look, the, the internet is critical infrastructure is. At, at this point. So if you're messing with the underlying codes that power all of the websites that we rely on, that is no different than taking a gas plant offline or a bank offline or something like that. An attack on the internet is an attack on critical infrastructure. So I totally agree with what the ambassador is saying there. So if you listened last week, you were introduced to Andrew Morris and his company, Gray Noise. And this week, he decided to make some noise. Or news, if you will. Morris found that someone is conducting an unusually targeted campaign to spoof the IP addresses of major U.S. banks in a possible effort to embarrass security vendors. The affected banks include J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and SunTrust. Threat intel teams in the financial sector are investigating but it looks like it may be an effort to raise awareness over a practice from a big-time spam monitoring company. Greg, what's going on here? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting story that came on our radar this week. Thanks to Andrew. It looks like somebody was just wildly spoofing traffic for the purpose of kind of uprooting what this company called Spam House is doing it has to do with the black their their blacklisting protocols and it's some really really interesting technical stuff there's been a lot of chatter on twitter about it but basically there are some security researchers out there that are taking issue with the way that spam house um, blacklists uh ips or blacklists some of their services so they decided to show the the greater internet what is actually happening here and it's caused an interesting bomb throwing, if you will, um, on on Twitter and the way that things are sort of unfolding with the way that this spam house company uh, conducts itself. It's just, it, it's wild to, you know, watch in real time. If you're a security researcher, and I, I think some of this stuff is really still going on, it's interesting to, to watch. And it, there's a lot of like collateral effect here because the banks are seeing this and they're like, well, we don't want this. I mean, security analysts at the banks are like, could you stop? Like, please, please stop doing this. We, we don't need this. Like, so you're, you're holding up. So what do banks do in this case? Um, Can they do anything? I, I'm not 
entirely sure they can ask the researchers to to stop or or go to these. uh, But they also then have to go to these other uh, threat companies and say, look, these, this might look like our IPs that they, they aren't our IPs. So let's do some fixing here. Like it's a lot of grief for, you know, not a lot. Like there, there were other avenues to do this, I guess, but, um, no, basically a lot of grief, like their networks aren't like going to be hacked or there isn't a, th- there isn't any more threats than they normally have to, to deal with. It's just a, a lot of headaches to raise awareness. So what security vendors were embarrassed so Spam House is this project. It's like an international organization that's based in like Europe and Scandinavia. They're there. I mean, they're all over the place. But they, um, you know, have all of these blacklists that basically say, watch for this traffic. This traffic is bad traffic. Um, okay. And, and uh, dump it, block it, do what you have to do. So by faking all of this traffic, they're kind of exposing – the way that these blacklists are made and how like some of the protocols aren't really right. They're unfair. Um, so that's why these security researchers have been doing what they're doing. Um, I would check out – Andrew has more. We have a story on it online. Andrew has more. If you follow Andrew on Twitter, check out what he's uh, been doing this past week. Really, really uh, interesting story and really, really interesting way to raise awareness about the way these blacklists are created. So famed cybersecurity researcher Marcus Hutchins, best known for helping stop the global spread of the WannaCry ransomware variant, has pleaded guilty to computer hacking crimes related to the creation of banking malware. Hutchins, better known by his Twitter handle MalwareTech, was accused of writing malware known as Kronos in 2014. According to a 2017 indictment, Hutchins allegedly created and updated Kronos while another unidentified person sold the malware on dark web marketplace Alphabay and other cybercrime forums. The two counts that Hutchins pleaded guilty to last week each carry up to five years in prison, $250,000 in fines, and a year of supervised release. Jen, what do you see the sentence being here? I don't know. I mean, I assume that he'll get sort of the max sentence here, but I mean, he didn't actually sell it, did he? No, he did not sell it. Uh, he was the author of it. He, that That's pretty much what he pled guilty to on Friday was that, I mean, I yeah, okay, I, I wrote you, this. Do you sue gunmakers when they um, are used to kill people? Well, the, and yeah, the, there you go. But the, the argument has been from the U.S. government was like, look, this was only really created for one purpose. This wasn't really a tool. This, this was made to be malicious, and it was made to be malicious, particularly for banks, and that there was really only one outcome that was going to happen here. And I think that he's I mean, copped to that. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And, you know, they should definitely make an example of him and give him, you know, the the 10 years in prison or whatever and the $500,000 fine with the two um, counts. So the stopping of WannaCry doesn't, wouldn't sway you if you were a judge? No. Interesting. And not at all. I, I just, I kind of feel like, if you are lenient on on this kind of thing, it opens the door for other people to do the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I would have to say I disagree a little bit only because I think he's, I mean, stopping the WannaCry variant, that could have, look how much damage that it did before he stopped it. So I feel like there's at least the display of benevolent behavior when it comes to cybercrime there. So I I wouldn't be surprised if the court looks upon that to say, okay, 
there's no reason to to throw the the max here. I mean, he's been pretty vocal on Twitter where it's like, okay, look, I copped to this. I did it. I don't do it anymore. It was a mistake when I was younger. I I don't do that anymore. I've moved on. I've accepted the fact that what younger. I did was I mean, wrong. About four years. How old is he? Uh, I believe Marcus is 24, 25 at oh. most. So oh, he was oh. 14, I believe. He, he was 14 or 15, at 16 at most when he wrote this stuff. Yeah, this isn't like uh, an adult. He wrote this oh, as a kid. Then, then they should, this should be looked at as um, not as an adult. I think that's a completely different different avenue then. Yeah. Um, I, I, now I, I take back what I said, right? So he was, I think when you're 15, 16, even 20, um, and you write something like this, I, I'm not sure um, you kind of know what you're doing and you just think something's cool and it's not like he sold it. So I would say, like, great, slap yeah. his wrist and a call today. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. And go I wouldn't, the guy who sold it. I would not be surprised if they give him, you know, a very, very lenient sentence. I, I don't think that – you can't give him time served because I don't think he's actually been inside a, a, a prison other than when he was detained famously after DEFCON two years ago. I th- there's an interesting article, an opinion article that was released Thursday night in the New York Times that basically said he should be pardoned. I don't think that's going to happen. I wouldn't I wouldn't hate for that to happen because I do think that his act of stopping wanna cry um, shows a lot about how much he's changed because I, I really can't stress how much worse WannaCry would have been had he not found the kill switch there. So I would be surprised if he gets the max here. I understand that the government likes to try to make an example of this stuff, especially over the past couple of years, but it's not like this kid is a nation state black hat hacker. He's been very vocal that this was a mistake. He hasn't done this anymore. So let's let's just get on with our lives. I would be very, very surprised if the sentence is more um, strong, if it was stronger than more lenient. I, I feel like he should just identify the the person who sold it and not get any sort of sentence. That I mean, that's an interesting angle. I don't think that that's ever uh, come out. Um, and I just I mean, don't think it's, again, he didn't sell it and I didn't realize he was a kid. So as, as a kid and not selling it, it sounds more like... He probably got taken advantage. Yeah, and I think that's generally the the opinion that I've seen around the infosec community. It's like, okay, he he pleaded guilty. We've seen his track record. Let's let's be lenient here and sort of move on. Yeah. So new data release Thursday shows revamped tools, including a backdoor variant in use by prolific criminal hacking group known as TA five hundred five. The data comes via Boston-based Cyber Reason, which says it blocked an attempted TA-505 hack of a large financial institution earlier this month. The group is best known for deploying the Locky ransomware, which robbed people of an estimated $200 million in 2016 and 2017. But Greg, this went beyond ransomware, right? Yeah, it looks like they had some interesting backdoors in this um, attempted attack there was some wipers also. There's a lot of living off the land going on here as well. But uh, it, it's part of a larger living campaign. Off living off the land, basically using tools and, and using things that are already out there on the internet to sort of spring forward like to that next level of, 
of hacks. Um, but also there was some social engineering going on here. Um, so it's way beyond ransomware at this point. I mean, this group is trying to make their money like any other cyber criminal group, and they've moved on to other things. And look at the height. Lockheed was one of the most common ransomware strains and that made over 200 million over 2016 and 2017. But with the heightened concentration on ransomware from cybersecurity companies, there are keys out there, like there are ways to unlock it. So they had to find other ways to make money. So- They've moved on to other stuff, but it looks like there are other cybersecurity companies out there that have figured out ways to block their new iteration. So it's kind of a whack-a-mole thing, but uh, better caught than found inside a financial institution when money has been stolen. So earlier this week, the FBI said in an annual report that the number of cybercrime complaints made to the Bureau in 2018 had jumped by more than 50,000, resulting in more than a billion dollars in additional losses compared to 2017. The FBI cited business email compromise scams as a constantly evolving threat that contributed to the cybercrime tally. On a positive note, the Bureau last year established a recovery asset team responsible for recouping money lost to cybercrime. That team had a recovery rate of 75% in 2018. So, Jen, good that the numbers of calls have gone up or bad due to the rising monetary loss? I'm just impressed by the 75% recovery rate in 2018. But it's amazing how much that number has gone up in terms of calls. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. The FBI has really been pounding the pavement, so to speak, on, hey, if you guys out there running your businesses have some kind of issue, cybercrime, please call us because otherwise you're never going to get your money back, whether it's a ransomware attack, whether it's just credentials stolen or any type of cybercrime that we talk about. Call the FBI and um, let us investigate because it's a crime. It goes back to something that I've, I've been wanting to see in you know just the greater community is, look, when there's a bank theft that we see, you know, in whether it's a small branch or a bigger branch or whatever, we see that reported in the news and nobody looks at the bank like, well, what were you doing? Unless it's like particularly egregious, like they left a safe door open (laughs) or something like that. Um, Nobody turns around and is like, oh, the bank should be embarrassed for letting that happen. No, criminals are going to commit crimes and we depend on the police to go after them and and arrest people when they have evidence of doing that. That same sort of mentality of looking at victims as not being dumb, they're just a victim, I think is something that needs to happen more and more. And by this report, I think that that's happening. These companies, organizations are picking up the phone and going, hey, help us out. This this happened. We're, we're not going to be embarrassed about it. We don't want all the details out there, but we're not going to be embarrassed about it. Please help us recoup our losses and help us get back to running our business. So I do think it's good that the number of calls have gone up. And if they continue to go up, I think that that number of um, the, the money number is just going to rise because the more data that you get on this, the more money's obviously being stolen. So I wouldn't be surprised if that number rises in the next year or two, but at least that number of people that are contacting the FBI is going up. Do we have any idea of what percentage of um, these sort of crimes go unreported? It has been a big, big number. I, I don't have the report on hand, but I remember that this was an annual report, the Internet um, Cyber Crime Report Center report, or the IC3 or whatever that acronym is, um, where that has been the takeaway from these reports. It's basically the FBI going, 
you're not calling us. Like we know that these losses are bigger because we need more intel on where these crimes are happening. So please call us. So I don't know. I offhand the number that was reported I, or that went misreported. I know that the number of unidentified crimes has always been high, and that's been the big sticking point for the FBI with this report the past couple of years. So hopefully that number is dropping. So two funding rounds this week to talk about. Uh, one, Massachusetts-based data protection platform provider Digital Guardian raised $30 million in funding with LLR Partners leading the round. The company focuses on data loss prevention and endpoint detection and response, helping companies deal with GDPR and the upcoming California privacy law. Then also, VDOO, which focuses on security automation for embedded devices, announced a $32 million Series B funding round led by venture capital firms WRVI Capital and GGV Capital. So far, the company has discovered 150 vulnerabilities affecting more than 1.5 billion IT devices worldwide. Jen, um, what do you think of both of these companies getting that amount of money? I really like that people are starting to um, put into their marketing materials that they are helping companies deal with GDPR and, and California's privacy law. Um, you know, obviously this company um, has been around longer than GDPR, GDPR um, has been. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, um, Digital Guardian has really sort of planted their flag here. I did a small podcast series on GDPR back when it was about to launch. And I talked to somebody at Digital Guardian about, you know, all the intricacies of the law. Very, very well versed and and really understand the nuances of what the law covers and what it doesn't cover. So uh, I, I really do think that Digital Guardian has made a concerted effort to plant their flag as, no, we're the company that, yeah, we, we have software that can help you deal with data loss prevention and all this stuff. But let's look at it through the lens of GDPR because that's really what you care about. You that's just don't, you, about, you, don't yeah. you don't want to have one of those massive fines come down on your head. So let's try to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. And um, I think we'll be more interesting as, as we get into this further with these companies that you know make these claims about helping you get ready for GDPR and the California law, et cetera, um, it'll be interesting when one of those companies they help protect does get hacked and the information goes out there. Um, you know what then? What does it look like in terms right. of marketing for that company that right. just said this is what we do for a living? Um, who's paying that fine, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to watch. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure that Digital Guardian has been very, very adamant in saying. Look, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have a data loss thing. But if you do, remember, just follow those guidelines with GDPR. Make sure you report everything. Get out in front of it. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and that way you won't be seeing, you know, your your revenue just tank. Um, yeah. So this other company, too, I just – I'm honestly surprised that just seems more and more money is being dumped into the – security of IOT. Like it just seems like it almost reminds me of the Casby market a little bit in that cloud security doesn't matter how crowded the market is. We're just going to keep dumping money into this because it matters. And I feel like IOT is not far behind that. There are just these companies that are concentrating on IOT and there's going to be all these devices out here. So somebody has to protect them. So let's dump money into it. I mean, I guess we're also, I mean, we're talking about stuff in our, in our households, right? I mean, I, if you look in, in my condo, I mean, I'm IOT all over the place, right? There's probably 50 devices um, sitting on my Wi-Fi network. Um, probably most of them aren't super secure. Probably none of them are secure enough. Um, 
to make me feel safe, but it's, um, but you're also talking about enterprise level things. You're talking about critical, critical infrastructure. I mean, it's such a big market. It's so important. Um, and, and I think this is just as big as cloud security at this point. Okay, now to our interview with Josh Lefkowitz from Flashpoint. Look, Flashpoint has been a really, really big company when it comes to monitoring what's going on on the dark web. And this week, they made an announcement about expanding the amount of intake they're taking off of the dark web. Uh, They just released a new platform and some new enhanced analytics on that platform that now feature dashboards, new analytics, expanded data sets that look into chat services and other underground communities, and also have industry alerting that simplify an organization's consumption and automation of intelligence. We talked to Josh about what he is seeing on the dark web and how this data can be integrated into organization socks. Check it out. Okay, now joining us, we welcome Josh Lefkowitz, the Flashpoint CEO. Josh, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So Josh, you had an announcement this week. Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. We were uh, incredibly excited to announce a range of uh, innovations and enhancements to our platform uh, on a number of fronts, including uh, expansion of collections, uh, analytics, and dashboarding. So with those analytics, you know, that seems to cover a lot of what's, you know, going on as far as what your product really does. So let's start with some of the analytics that you're pulling off the dark web. Let's start with like account and credit card data that's available on these dark web shops. Uh, How are you seeing these marketplaces evolve, especially with concerted effort by international law enforcement to take them offline? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, I think the the major headline across all these illicit actor environments is that it's a game of cat and mouse, that it is uh, move and counter move on the chessboard where you see illicit actors adapting and evolving based on uh, the countermeasures by uh, and the investigations, the takedowns by uh, uh, law enforcement across the globe. Uh, you also see illicit actors adapting and evolving uh, in response to what security researchers and the security community is doing. Uh, that's manifesting itself in in so many different ways. Certainly. Uh, Amongst the most prominent is the way that they've moved uh, many of their operations, or at least elements of their operations, into encrypted chat services like Telegram, where they feel that they have uh, more secure environments in which to operate. And uh, certainly, it can be uh, there, there can be a lot less friction as far as spinning up new channels. Yeah, let's talk about the the sort of driving it deeper underground. Um, if you will, is that a trend that you see growing? The fact that these dark web marketplaces aren't really following the Amazon.com model anymore and everything's being driven more underground into smaller communities that can be leveraged on chat apps. Yeah, that, that certainly aligns with what we're seeing. Uh, you know, I think f- federal law enforcement here in the U.S. as well as uh, Interpol, Europol, and, and many of their sister and brother agencies uh, internationally have been very adept at uh, going after some of these top-tier marketplaces. Of course, everyone knows the story of Silk Road, um, and there have been many since then that have been successfully uh, taken down by law enforcement. And so uh, 
illicit actors are, uh, are, are quite adaptive, quite intelligent, uh, and are, are constantly changing their playbooks in response to that. Um, I think these chat services, uh, you know, again, have that perception of uh, enhanced security with the end-to-end encryption component. The real-time communication very much aligns with how today's generation is uh, is is pursuing many of their engagements and interactions with that uh, that that fast chat like like application. Uh, these chat services are also uh, very amenable to the sharing of media, whether it be images, whether it be video, uh, whether it be PDFs, etc. Often more so than than the forum ecosystem. And so we're seeing a broad swath of actors who are using that media capability to post images of receipts, for example, that they have uh, generated in the course of fraudulent transactions, uh, posting images of them in their day job uniforms that give them access to uh, sensitive corporate networks, et cetera. Uh, And so that uh, evolution of chat services has really uh, been an interesting trend to, to watch and track over the uh, over the near term, uh, and, and certainly expect it will continue to evolve going forward. So why did you choose to monitor Telegram chats? Why that particular um, product? Yeah, great question. So we really first clued into Telegram as an environment of relevance within the illicit actor community uh, several years ago when it became a uh, a favored uh, avenue for uh, jihadists, uh, particularly ISIS, to uh, move their uh, primary network. Certainly, they were still using deep web, deep web forums, uh, but Telegram really emerged as a primary environment for them to network, fundraise, share propaganda, uh, attempt to recruit, etc., cetera, uh, for many of the same reasons that we just discussed. And it's been fascinating to see cyber criminals of, of all flavors, all persuasions, all geographies, all languages now move there as well. Um, and we're also seeing other types of, uh, of illicit activity and, and really signal-rich intelligence uh, being shared in Telegram. You may have seen that there was uh, an individual who uh, gained access to uh, an, Ira- an Iranian APT group's uh, operations in the last couple of weeks. Right, the oil rig. Exactly, dumping some some really interesting uh, data there that that he purported to be accurate, or the actor purported to be accurate, to include uh, attribution of individuals in that uh, in that APT group, uh, technical data, etc. Uh, so Telegram has really evolved as a, a very high signal uh, source of intelligence across so many different uh, illicit actor communities. So these communities are they you know, wide open for people to join? Because I was under the impression that Telegram was more of an encrypted chat service. So I'm wondering, you know, if you could give us a little bit more detail into how exactly it is that you're getting into uh, these chat rooms. Are they just open for anybody to join or is there something else going on here? Yeah, it really runs the, the spectrum, just like so many other environments across the illicit actor underground where, uh, there are a multitude of environments that are very easy to access, where there uh, are essentially no controls governing who can get in the front door, all the way down to extremely closely held environments that 
uh, you know, require you to have a, an invitation link that require you to be vetted and vouched for that have virtual bouncers at the front door that are uh, ensuring that that you're uh, who you claim to be and that your bona fides align with the virtual persona that uh, that. Uh, that you have in, in these inevitably anonymous environments uh, and everything in between. There may be inv invitation links that expire after a, a finite period of time. Uh, and so that's why we've really built our business around a combination of the human and, uh, and, and the technology. We fundamentally believe that just having uh, automation is uh, only going to get you to a certain point, particularly in these closely vetted, closely held environments. You need to be able to speak the language, which often is a foreign language. You need to know the slang and intricacies of these different environments. And you have to have the tradecraft from an operational security perspective to be able to navigate your way into all these different uh, ecosystems. So how are you getting around the virtual bouncer? Uh, so that's really, you know, core to Flashpoint and how we've built credibility across such a broad array of uh, different illicit actor communities since our earliest days. We founded the company in, in 2010 and prior to that had been doing a ton of work in uh, online environments where terrorists congregate. Uh, so, you know, that tradecraft is very much in our DNA since our founding days. Uh, and, it, and it comes back to social engineering, understanding how uh, particular illicit actor communities are operating, whether it be uh, Iranian hackers, whether it be Spanish hackers, whether it be uh, jihadist communities, et cetera, uh, knowing what they value as far as uh, who they're looking for as a participant in their communities. And there's always this tension, whether you're talking about an ISIS chat room or uh, a malware development chat room, where they all have motives, whether it's financial, whether it's ideological. And they need uh, they need business partners. They they need individuals who are going to donate to their cause, et cetera. And so that tension between operational security and and secrecy uh, also uh, has a, a double edge to that to that sword, where they they need participants. And so we've really uh, finally honed our ability to uh, navigate our way into these different communities by adopting those virtual personas. Within these markets, what are some of the most popular items that you're seeing? Is it still really rooted in the drug trade or have things expanded? Um, so drugs are, are certainly an extraordinarily popular item. Uh, you'll also see how-to manuals on a variety of, uh, of different fraud schemes, et cetera, uh, Packaged credential uh, databases have, have also uh, skyrocketed in popularity with just the avalanche of, of breaches and, and combo lists that now are in the on the multi-billions. Uh, you see threat actors who are packaging up uh, disparate credential or credentials from disparate breaches and then uh, taking those and, and turning those into consolidated combo. Uh, password and, and username and password lists and selling those as individual items. Uh, and of course, that's manifesting itself in, uh, you know, the, the avalanche of credential stuffing and, and account takeover attacks that you're seeing across the industry. So you also announced Intel feeds based on tailored industries like financial services, retail, legal and healthcare, um, looking for patterns that find the signal in the noise. How are you doing this with regard to industries? 
Yeah. So, you know, it really comes down to uh, one of the core components of uh, intelligence, which is is relevancy. And when you talk about relevancy, uh, needless to say, there's there's inevitably the, the first concentric circle, which is tell me what's most relevant to me and my organization. And as we've built out the business over the last nine years, what we've seen is that relevancy often also incorporates relevancy to my industry, to my sector. Um, and so leveraging our analysts with their domain expertise and, and their close connection to our customers, as well as their foreign language expertise, we've built multi-language keyword patterns that help really hone in on pertinent discussions, pertinent developments in these illicit actor communities that have broad relevance to a particular sector. So within retail, for example, most retailers across the globe are going to care about discussions that are relevant to POS malware, for example. Um, Customers within the insurance vertical are going to care about discussions where an illicit actor is claiming access to um, uh, databases uh, from a particular insurance company, which they may not have specifically identified. Um, And so we've seen these industry patterns as we've rolled them out previously in other industries such as financial services to be really well received by our customer base. And that's one of the one of the drivers of why we've expanded that capability in this release. So part of the networks that you are monitoring, you know, you're, I saw the announcement and it looks like you're expanding your reach to places like 4chan, 8chan, and places that I've actually never heard of, like Dread. So what are the difference between all of those places and how have you seen the threats grow within these, for lack of a better term, internet cesspools? Uh, sure. So uh, Dread is very much a evolution of, of some of the uh, dark web components of Reddit uh, and uh, has mirrored elements of how that environment operates. Uh, a lot of discussions on Red about, uh, on Dread rather, about uh, darknet markets, et cetera, uh, the main players. There have been active discussions there, for example, uh, when it comes to some of the uh, potential evolutions with the Wall Street market in recent days, which uh, is is uh, evolving, to put it mildly. Uh, and then 4chan and, and 8chan uh, have become havens for uh, uh, discussions of uh, you know of a variety of different flavors, uh, extremist discussions, for example. Uh, imagery is is often shared there. Uh, and so, you know, it really reflects our uh, our broadening approach to uh, tracking illicit activity across the internet, and, and what we're seeing within enterprise security environments, which is really this convergence of how physical threats are being looked at, how cyber threats are being looked at. We've seen uh, in some of those uh, Chan environments threats to uh, executives at Fortune 500 companies, uh, and so our customers are looking for us to. Uh, stay abreast of those and help them navigate risk in in their environments and threats to their executives. How do you see this fitting into a SOC with all the other data that security operations have to process? Yeah, another great question. Uh, So I think one of the core elements that cyber threat intelligence teams navigate is the avalanche of, of CVEs and how they can most effectively prioritize and sequence, uh, those vulnerabilities that are being disclosed, particularly those that have exploits attached to them. Uh, And so with the CVE data that we've since exposed and the CVE dashboard that we've made available, it's really intending to help 
vulnerability management teams, CTI teams, SOC teams better prioritize that patching process. And so we've married up MITRE and NVD data with discussions in threat actor communities, including discussions where uh, active proof of concept code is being discussed and tested. Um, and so we've seen a, a really uh, powerfully positive response from our customers uh, in terms of how that's informing their operations on the cyber threat intelligence side. So, Josh, we end every interview on Securiosity with a random question this week, wondering what is the piece of tech that's been put out the pasture that you wish you could bring back? <laughs> that's a great question. Some days I yearn for my flip phone, the, the simplicity of, yeah. uh, <laughs> of not having alerts across Signal and Slack and text message and email and WhatsApp and you know FaceTime and Skype and everything else that you can name. And if you've ever looked at your iPhone at the uh, analytics of screen time, whew, that is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, yeah, no that, that is a nice little... Uh, uh, kick to the ass uh, every Sunday. I think that I get where it's like you've spent an inordinate amount of time on your phone this weekend, and <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you for making me feel terrible. Um, exactly. I'm totally with you on the flip phone side of of things. I would love to have uh, a razor back, just from a size perspective as well. So we're definitely on the same page. <laughs> Excellent. So, Josh. Really appreciate you hopping aboard, and thanks for telling us about all, all the new things that Flashpoint has rolling out. Real quick, if, if somebody's interested in, in trying to put this into their SOC, how would they do that? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website. Uh, there's a multitude of more information there, including uh, details of how to get in contact with us. Great. All right, Josh. Thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Thanks so much. Take care. So thanks again to Josh. And before we go, another event to tell you about. If you have been to one of our events, you know we're not your typical cybersecurity conference. So we're taking our show on the road again this year. From September 16th to 20th, we'll be hosting New York Cyber Week in New York City. This week, as always, is about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. Register now to join 60-plus community events around the Big Apple. And for more information on what we have planned, check out nycyberweek.com. And that is it for this week. Stay curious.